Hey there, John. How you doing, man? Hey, Glenn. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I missed you. We haven't talked in, it seems like, a month or something like that. Because of all this holiday stuff. Yeah. That's right. But we're back. We are here. Glenn and John, this is The Glenn Show, uh, formerly at bloggingheads.tv, now at my Substack, glennlowry.substack.com, and also at my YouTube channel, YouTube, forward slash C, forward slash Glenn Lowry Show. Subscribe, like, share, etc. With John McWhorter, with the black guys. And uh, we talk every other week. We took a week off, uh, apropos of the holiday season, but we're back. So welcome back, John. In the meantime, a lot of momentous stuff has happened. Uh, just last week, we lost Sidney Poitier. Uh, you are a follower of popular culture, clo- more close than I am. But even I know about the impact of Sidney Poitier because, actually, John, you were just a babe in arms. <laughs> when was Lilies of the Field? Uh, when was uh, To Serve with Love? Uh, when was uh, In the Heat of the Night? I mean, did you ever see these movies in the theater? I, I doubt it. I've seen them all, not in the theater, but that's because I'm crazy and I'm obsessed with the past. But yeah, To Serve with Love, I think, is 62. I know Lilies uh-huh. of the Field, there was a musical of it in 1968, which means the movie must be, say, five years before. And yeah. In the Heat is that great year of 60, is it 69? Um, Dr. Doolittle, In the Heat of the Night, there were a bunch. That's, it's either 67 or 69. So yes, at that time, I'm a babe in arms, whereas you actually saw them. Yeah. They call me Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A line that will echo in uh, filmic history, you know. <laughs> you know, with with him, I understand the iconic status. He was in a lot of great movies. He was a great actor. Raisin in the Sun, which I took a look at oh, recently. Yeah. But you know what? Yeah. I It's funny. There's something about him when I was a kid and even beyond. I never thought of him as iconic in the way that everybody else does. It's not that I didn't think he was good, but... I never thought, well, here was this pioneer, even though he was the first, you know, black actor to play dignified parts in one movie after another. I get that intellectually, but it never, it was rattling around the back of my mind. It never sat with me that he was this black presence. And as I got older, I realized what it was. He was a very interesting transitional figure in that he was Caribbean. He had a bit of an accent. And so the way that everybody read him, partly because, you know, especially white viewers just basically saw all black men as one mass at the time. Some people would say they still do. I doubt it. But certainly back then, everybody's saying, here's this black man on screen. But I always thought, no, here's this Caribbean on screen. He didn't talk the way Walter Younger would have spoken as a man who was grew up in Chicago. You know, in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, I didn't think here's this black man marrying this white girl. I thought, here's this Caribbean black man marrying this white girl. It's a whole different equation. And I know that in those roles, we're supposed to think that this character grew up in Chicago or Philadelphia or something like that. But I never even started to believe it. And so now I look back and I realize that's the way it had to have been. I mean, he was a necessary transitional figure. In 1959, if you're going to do the defiant ones or something like that, there's no way that it would have worked for white America if he were a black man who sounded like a black man in, from the United States. It had to start with this person who actually sounds like he's from the islands, and so it kind of leavens what people thought of as blackness. And I get the feeling nobody was thinking about it much at the time, but he paved the way for black American 
actors to come in and be leads starting really majorly in the late 70s and especially the 80s. That's how I always saw him. I thought of him as a Caribbean actor playing a Black American actor. But maybe I'm thinking too much. But that's Sounds how like I... an insight to me, John. I think you ought to write it up if you haven't already. Hmm. Uh, I mean, what, oh. he, what does he do? He, he embodies and projects a kind of dignity. I think that is the key word, dignity and fury. I mean, he could, he, you know, to, it, those things go together because after all, segregation and Jim Crow are a motherfucker, man. They got, they are a boot, they are a literal knee on your neck. So the guy is angry, but in a way that the mainstream audience that read white audience would accept. Uh, he's not Malcolm X. He, he you know, he, he, exactly. he's not threatening quite in that way. And it may well be that the cultural nuance that you're calling attention to the slight lilt of the Caribbean accent and whatnot, maybe even the look. I mean, he's dark skinned. I, I don't know. I'm not, this is not my field, but I, I can imagine that someone who studies this might go into that. Doesn't quite strike the audience as that guy in the ghetto who's, who's about to come and get me and, uh -uh. you know, rape uh -uh. my mother or whatever. No. So he's able to, he's able to get away with some stuff. Maybe, maybe. Uh, I really think that was it. Also, even the way he walks, he walks like a Caribbean man. He does not have the quote unquote street short drop black swagger. You know, he was a different thing than, yeah, I think America would have been scared of someone like, say, Jim Brown, who, you know, was a native born yeah. black American person. You know, he didn't become a major movie star. He did some. Now, Portier, Portier and Harry Belafonte are, are contemporaries, and Belafonte quite obviously is a, is a Caribbean calypso. Singer, oh, a great, a great artist, without any doubt, but also a political radical in a way that Sidney Poitier never was. But Belafonte also, this is the thing, he grew up in Harlem. You know, that was another thing. His career was predicated partly, and I'm not saying he was a phony, but that yeah. emphasizing the Belafonte name and all that Deo stuff, that went over in a way that Black American stuff would not have. You know, the idea that he was from the islands. He grew up on 125th Street. I mean, I'm Dale, making up a <laughs> Oh, man, that stuff sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, he was great. And he was a political. I mean, I think he thinks of his main contribution to life to be his politics. And I, I get it. And true. But that Deo thing, that was sidestepping what I don't think white America was really ready for. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Now, now, Raisin and Son, you mentioned Walter Lee Younger. This is the character in uh, that great uh, play. Uh, who's the author of that? Lorraine uh, Hansberry. Lorraine yeah. Hansberry. Chicago in the 1950s, housing segregation and whatnot, struggling black family, trying to make it coming up against racism. Walter Lee Younger is the grown man's son. He's got a wife. He's got a kid. They're living in their mother's house. He can't quite hold himself a job. The world is kicking him in the butt. He's driving white man's cars and got his nose pressed against America's candy store window. He wants in. He wants in. He's angry. True. He's bitter. He's it's chewing at him on the inside. Now I've seen uh, Sidney Poitier in that great film, but I've also seen P. Diddy play that play that oh, did role. Did you see that? I saw it, man, with Felicia Rashad <laughs> playing uh, Mama. Yeah, and and I'm just wondering. You haven't seen it. You didn't see P. Diddy. You know, to I be was going to invite you to compare them. I skipped that production because I just couldn't imagine P. Diddy carrying carrying the weight of it. I just figured, how good could he be there using him to sell tickets? So I didn't see that production, but I've seen many others. Yeah. 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 My late wife, Linda, and I went down to New York and we saw it. Uh, how was it? It was okay. He, he, he pulled it off. He didn't make a fool out of himself. He didn't. Okay. But, but yeah. he, didn't, he didn't quite 
rise to the level of greatness that I think Portier achieves not in his portrayal yeah. of that character. Yeah, uh, because it's it's a really it's a it's a heavy lift playing mm-hmm. that guy. It's a it's a really heavy lift. It was interesting casting, but I just thought I can't no no because I knew it would be back in the end of Desmond. So yeah, it's a great it's a great play. There's a biography of Hansberry that is um, coming out this spring. Um, it's not perfect, but it's worth reading, especially about her earlier life. And um, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting. Thing. She was a lefty, wasn't she? A communist or uh, hung out with Rollin, them, a hippie? Lefty. She had hippie before they were hippies. <laughs> Marxist lean. She hung out with hippies before they were called that. Um, she um, married a white man before that was common. She was also actually she was gay, and you know, working through that before she was taken away from us in 1965. Too early. Very. Interesting figure, and live long enough that you can listen to her and you can watch her. You can you can see what she was like. So, I guess you'd yeah. say she was a beatnik, not a hippie. That would probably be more accurate, right? Right, right. <laughs> she was she was with her cigarettes. She was she was fascinating. But yeah, what about um somebody else passed away? Lanny Guineer. Um, oh uh, yeah, another French last name. Come to think of it, but yeah. So I'll bet you knew her. I did know Lanny. She was a professor at Harvard Law School. In fact, she was the first black woman professor at Harvard Law School, if I am not mistaken. Derek Bell, Derek Bell, or the great Derek Bell, father of critical race theory by some reading, um, resigned from Harvard Law School in protest of their failure to appoint to a tenured position a woman of color. He was advocating for that. The school did not respond quickly enough to his liking. And and he left. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, Lanny's appointment came shortly thereafter, and she was the first. Um, and I did know her uh, more than casually. I mean, I'm not going to say we were bosom buddies, but we sat for a coffee at a Starbucks on more than one occasion to chew the fat. Of course, we were in different locations on the political spectrum. She was the, uh, a lefty, and I was not. I was in my I was in my neocon phase in, in, in those years. This is the late 80s, early 90s. But uh, she was uh, famous uh, for having been Bill Clinton's uh, nominee to be assistant, uh, assistant attorney, attorney general, general for civil rights. Right. Uh, this was early 90s, obviously, Bill Clinton, 93, 94. And uh, he ultimately... Uh, and infamously withdrew her nomination when it came into uh, came in for a lot of criticism in the Senate, uh, the confirmation hearings, and he didn't think that he could take the hit of having her uh, go through the confirmation hearing process and be rejected by the Senate. She was dubbed by the Wall Street Journal and others a quota queen. I can remember the editorial in the Wall Street Journal. Can't quite quote the title of it, but I'm pretty sure the phrase "quote a queen" was in it. It might have just been, that might have just been the title "quote a queen." You can look it up because in her academic writing about voting rights, she had uh, speculated about various ways of rearranging uh, the casting of ballots so as to ensure more effective representation for minority populations. So an mm-hmm. example would be. A city has a city council, and they're electing members, and they're electing them by uh, single-member districts, or they're electing them by 
at-large elections. So say they're electing them by at-large elections, then a minority of population in the city might have a candidate that they like who never can secure a majority of votes at a citywide uh, vote. And so the city council ends up not having anybody representing that part of the electorate. Whereas if you have single member districts and the districts are drawn corresponding where the neighborhoods are, then the minority neighborhoods might be the majority in one of those districts and be able to effectively elect a minority representative who would speak for them in the city council. And she kind of parsed that issue in ways making suggestions. I can't cite chapter and verse from her research off the top of my head, but the basic thrust of it was, let's try to arrange the electoral rules in a way to achieve outcomes uh, that are more uh, representative of the minority voices in the population. That's what got her dubbed a quota queen. Um, so she was, re she was withdrawn by Bill Clinton, and I say infamously because progressive progressives, I think, have never forgiven him for not standing by this Black woman who was being viciously and unfairly attacked. I do think the caricatures, this is not to say I agreed with everything she had to say about voting rights. I did not at the time, but that's not the point. The point is she was a perfectly legitimate <clears throat> Uh, she's not a radical, wild-eyed person. She was a left-of-center advocate of minority voting rights that a Democratic president wanted to be assistant attorney general for civil rights and that he didn't have the backbone to stick with her and push that through or didn't have the votes. And I don't know, maybe the political calculation he made was somehow a correct calculation. You know, Bill Clinton, the triangulator, you know, he was doing his sums and assessing the landscape and whatnot. He, he did get himself elected in 1992 when Democrats were, you know, had their backs against the wall. She, his sister soldier moment was reenacted with the Lonnie Guineer nomination. Yeah. Um, you know, Glenn, I'm doing I don't, something I don't usually do is I'm looking up something. Because there's something about Guineer that I, I never understood, and I'm not, I'm not saying this in, in criticism, but I didn't, I didn't understand quite what we were supposed to think. I thought that she did a paper with Susan Sturm where she did argue for, for quotas. And, you know, that can be a respectable opinion, but I thought her idea was that with affirmative action as opposed to voting, that things should be jiggered in some way so that, say, Black students are represented in the student body according to their proportion in the population. I actually thought she had argued that. And my question, and why I'm sitting here awkwardly looking in a book while, while talking to you, is because maybe she argued that after all of this happened. And, and now I'm looking. Okay. Sturm and Guineer, The Future of Affirmative Action, Reclaiming the Innovative Ideal, California Law Review, 1996. So, that article is after what Yeah, it's after. But I thought she, so I'm now thinking, I always thought she had made that argument. And I'm not saying that that makes her a bad arguer or something, but it was always said she wasn't a quota queen. But she did make that argument. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you know? of course, I mean, every progressive black law professor in the academy was in support of affirmative action. I mean, I don't doubt that she made that argument. Right. The, the caricature, quota queen, I mean, read Welfare Queen, except now we're doing quotas. Right. Had a kind of connotation that I think was probably unfair. I mean, that, that's yes. just my, my yeah. reaction to it. It, it. it was an extremely, uh, you know, 
uh, offensive way of 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 characterizing her. It was putting a real uh, stink on her. Yeah, it was rhetorical. And and anybody that was going to get a Democratic uh, nomination uh, for uh, a civil rights uh, head at the Justice Department was going to be friendly toward affirmative action. She wasn't. She wasn't in that respect different from the mainstream of the left of center uh, academic population in the country. I mean, I don't know who actually took that position afterwards, but I'll bet you they were supportive of affirmative action, perhaps just not as vocally and uh, directly. You mean affirmative uh, action in the quota sense? In that the, well, the, come on, this is just playing with words, in my opinion. You're the linguist. We want, uh, we, we're not for quotas. Uh, we're, we're for affirmative action, but we're not for quotas. I mean, I think that's a difference, a distinction without a real difference. I mean, they're, they're, what they're going to say is we don't have a specific number in mind. That's what we think of as a quota. You have to get right. 12%. We just want a thumb on the scale that advances the thing. And that just so happens that it's going to come out 12%. Okay. But we're not really, we don't really have quotas. Harvard in the We've Asian- seen that argument, right. The, yeah. In the Asian case, Harvard doesn't really have quotas for blacks. They just have, you know, a, a, a well-rounded assessment of candidates that takes into account all the things. Except that when you look at the numbers, the black populations are 10, 11, and 12 percent in every class going back the last 25 years. Somehow, well-roundedness seems to produce the yes. same it's number, but you know, important. so quotas, uh, whatever. I mean, you know. You know what? I, yeah. You know, one of the only Hillary Clinton moments where I really don't like her, I have no Hillary animus of any kind, but there's one thing she did where I think, ooh, that's not my person. And that's that moment with Lanny Guineer where Lanny Guineer is in some hallway and Hillary Clinton's coming the other way when, you know, Lanny Guineer has been rejected and this is all over the news and she's looking bad in the news, quote a queen, et cetera. And apparently Hillary Clinton passes by her and stops and says, sorry, kiddo, blah, 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 and calls her kiddo. And, you know, they were about age contemporaries, and the kiddo is so condescending. And so it's coming from, here I am, you know, I'm the first lady, and, you know, basically I'm helping run the country with my husband. We are the big cheese, and here you are down here. You are in our power. Sorry, kiddo. Just that is the most tone deaf, condescending thing I have ever seen coming from her. It really, I'm, it might, there might be a little bit of race in it. I'm not going to go that far. But even if she said that to a white woman, just sorry, kiddo, just it's like she's speaking from on high. That is the deafest thing I have ever heard her say. Everybody has moments like that, but it doesn't look, it, it's a bad look. I agree with that. <laughs> now, I, I'm not known for being a Hillary Rodham Clinton defender <laughs> because the campaign of 2008 is way in the past. <laughs> During that campaign, I did support Hillary Rodham Clinton. Forgive me, everybody. Forgive me. But I just want to note, Lonnie Guineer was 74 when she passed. I don't know how old Hillary Clinton is. I'm going to guess 76. Somewhere like in that. there. She's early. 75. 75. Yeah. Guineer is an alum of the Yale Law School, as is Hillary Rodham Clinton and Bill Clinton. They might have even overlapped there. They're peers, yeah. They, they, they are peers. They might have known each other going all the way back to law school. Kiddo. So that kiddo could be interpreted as a kind of colloquial way of referring to a mate. We're all in this together, right? You know, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it might not have had quite the meaning that 
you have ascribed to it, which I think an uninformed listener would be, um, you know, uh, justified in, in, in inferring. It might have just been a, a kind of informal, colloquial way of referring to not quite a buddy, but somebody I've known for a long, long, long time. And maybe, you know, buddy, sorry. And maybe sorry, woman kiddo. to woman, like, you know, we're yeah. all going through these things. She's maybe saying, I've gone through it with healthcare, kiddo. Maybe. Well, not just that, but the whitewater thing and the whole, the whole bitter attack on the Clintons early in that uh, presidency, which was, and, and Hillary Clinton's. Uh, role as kind of uh, chief advisor to the president. She had the health care portfolio, as I recall, and that was being bitterly fought in the Congress. They came in for a lot of grief. It ended up with Kenneth Starr and uh, Monica Lewinsky and all of that. I mean, but but they were constantly under attack and investigation. So, you know, a nomination that has to be pulled because of the right wing are successful in demonizing a candidate. That's something that Hillary Rodham Clinton had some firsthand knowledge about. So. You know, something else about Lonnie Guineer, actually, that I'm thinking of right now is yeah. that um, just like, you know, I need to be tempered in my interpretation of kiddo. You know, it could have meant all sorts of things. We always have to second guess ourselves. It's funny. She um, and I am not. I have res- full respect for her, but I'm remembering something. You're saying that she had coffee with you, that, you know, you two yeah. had very different views, and yet, you know, she was open. Lonnie Guineer did not like me. And I'm just thinking about the fact that I met her once, and she was so disdainful. I mean, all within the bounds of civility, but she would barely look me in the eye. And because she just passed, I'm going to leave out something she said. We were on a panel together, and it was just... The disdain was clear, utter disdain. This is uh, after losing the race came out, I assume. This is probably 2005. And I don't, you know, I don't carry it with me, but I'm thinking about it now. And yeah. I'm used to people from a certain spectrum thinking of me that way. But the thing is, she didn't like me, but she was okay with you, which leads me to think that maybe with me, it wasn't my politics. Maybe she found something particular about me unpleasant. Maybe she just didn't like me as opposed to the politics. And you have to be open to things like that. She has coffee with you. She won't even look at me and takes a pot shot at me in front of an audience. I guess it was just me. So I'm not likable. <laughs> oh, well, well, John, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, but I but I knew Lonnie Guineer's father. That was another thing about oh, you the attack him. on her. Hmm. In that you were you were Guineer. Yes, I did, because he was the first chairman of the Harvard Afro-American Studies Department. I forgot about that. That's and right. I was jointly appointed in that department when I got to Harvard in 1982. I was appointed in economics and in Afro-American Studies. And while uh, Ewart Guineer was no longer serving as chair of the department, he had retired, he was still alive and was occasionally in uh, present, you know, coming to functions and such like that. And he had a background as a communist, and which is, you know, not unusual in that generation of uh, of people who were left of center. He had affiliation with the party in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And that was trotted out and used against her by the right-wing critics really? for her nomination. Oh, yeah. Her father is a com- I mean, this is uh, Emmett Terrell, the publisher and of, uh, Amer- of the American Spectator, that magazine, mm-hmm. which I think is still publishing, uh, but uh, was a... Uh, a uh, you know, with the National Review, and I don't know that National Review trafficked in this kind of uh, of uh, character assassination, but the American Spectator certainly did. 
yeah, yeah. They used her father's former affiliation with the Communist Party against her, someone not to be trusted, a Marxist and whatnot. I mean, you know, she was an advocate of the uh, voting rights, uh, aggressive drawing of congressional districts to make sure this is a part of that general program that she had of trying to make sure that minority voices got heard in uh, democratic councils of, you know, political deliberation and whatnot. Um, I remember a debate, Lonnie Guineer and the late Abigail Thernstrom, your friend and mine, uh, my former friend, you know, she's not here with us anymore. Abigail Thernstrom wrote a, a book, I thought a very fine book called Whose Votes Count, mm-hmm. which was published, oh, I'm going to say 1987. I, I make it the year not quite that, right. That book never got around as much as it should. It had a lot of very it should have arguments. It was a very passionate, well-informed, uh, deeply researched critique of the practice of drawing congressional districts so as to create majority-minority districts and of the use of that kind of theory of political representation for Black people uh, at high levels of American government. She didn't think that the color of a representative matching the color of the constituents was the right metric for judging whether or not constituents were well represented. And she objected to these funny shaped uh, districts where the the uh, uh, redistricting uh, uh, legislature bends over backwards to create majorities of black voters so that black people can have a voice. She was against that. Lonnie Guineer was for it. Uh, and they had, uh, you know, spirited, uh, civil, but very strongly argued uh, differences of opinion. I can remember a conference at must Harvard have been interesting. where these ideas were being kicked around. Now, the point that I wanted to make was Guineer's side has prevailed, uh, you know, to almost 100% of what they wanted. Yeah. It's not even controversial anymore that you would yeah. draw a congressional district in order to ensure that Black people get elected by constituting constituencies that are disproportionately Black, and in effect, inviting Black people to vote for the Black face as the signature indication that their political interests are being expressed. And in this time when people are, uh, you know, talking about uh, asking for IDs at the voting booth, the laws in Congress that are said to be essential to securing the rights of, of minority people to vote, I think it can be forgotten that uh, this dispute ever took place, let alone that the progressive side of the dispute have uh, prevailed yeah. uh, uh, almost uh, completely. Yeah, it's, um, it's easier to believe that change doesn't happen than to acknowledge that it happens slowly. That is something that Leon Weaseltier tossed off somewhere, and I've always carried it with me. It's, it's important. It's easy to think that nothing's happening, but harder to see that change does happen, but it just tends to be slow. And yeah, Lonnie Guineer is a perfect example of the public intellectual whose ideas actually have an effect. Now, it took a while. You know, nobody was expecting, you know, what we now think of as normal back in the early 90s. But yeah, that the proportional representation that looked so quote unquote crazy when she was associated with it back in the 90s now is, you know, it's mother's milk in many places. I always wondered, and, you know, I'm out of my lane and, you know, theorizing about it. I was always a little shaky about her idea of the black interest. It always sounded like she was talking about a kind of a monolithic black interest that I'm not sure quite holds, especially if you look at native-born black people and Caribbean immigrants these days, et cetera. I mean, especially now, but even then I thought she seems to think that there's this black vote 
and that everybody thinks the same. And I was thinking, well, maybe that's true, 93%, and I'm just splitting hairs. I was never sure. But yeah, her way of looking at things isn't seen as radical now, and that's that's an accomplishment, I think. Yeah, um, I could go on for a long time about the, the deleterious consequences of presuming that racial identity is a main fundamental aspect of who we are as individual citizens around which we need to organize our political interests. Whatever happened to class? I mean, this, by the way, is a, a critique that oughtn't to come from the right. It ought to come from the left. The, mm. the left ought to be objecting strenuously to the racialization of the discussion about political representation in this country. Black people's voices are being silenced. What about working people's voices, which would have blacks and whites on the same side of the aisle? What, what about working for a vision of political representation in which class and not race were the most salient aspect of a person's uh, portfolio of interest? Uh, we have many. Uh, what about the very possibility that these representatives who get elected based on racially gerrymandered districts are beholden not to uh, the uh, uh, interest of the uh, rank and file people who are uh, uh, in their midst, but rather are beholden to uh, a, bu a bunch of elites who uh, fund their campaigns or uh, are captive to an ideology that doesn't actually serve the interest of, of their people, et cetera. Yeah. It's, um, and, you know, I'm sure she was asked about this, and I wonder what her answers were. You know, there's no way she never thought about this. I'm sure she had some some answers to these sorts of questions. But I am not aware of where she where they were written, but I'll bet she had a response. And I'm sure it was an intelligent one. I, I would be remiss if I did not mention the name Carol Swain here. Mm. Uh, Carol Swain is a political scientist, retired now emeritus from Vanderbilt, if I'm not mistaken. He was there, yeah. Uh, she's an outspoken Christian woman, and she's an outspoken Black conservative, and she's a Trump supporter, unabashed. I mean, so, of course, she is in bad odor in many quarters. But she's a PhD in political science from the University of North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, and was a tenured professor in the political science department at Princeton before she moved and has a book, Black Faces, Black Interest. I think that's what the book is called, in which she systematically critiques the idea that I've just tried to sketch, that you measure the effectiveness of the political interests being represented of Black uh, rank and file people by counting the number of Black faces that are in the legislature. I mean, she points out, for example, when you redraw these uh, district maps in the redistricting process and you take all the black voters from a variety of different uh, naturally drawn districts and you artificially aggregate them into a district which has a majority minority vote, you deprive all the other districts of the black representatives who might have voted more progressively. And while you end up with a black face in Congress, you might end up with a lot more conservative uh, uh, a delegation than you otherwise would have had because all the other districts that were deprived of black voters have now got a much more conservative constituency and the candidates who succeed in those districts will tend to be further to the right than they might <clears> otherwise <throat> have been. So the net effect on the legislative of, uh, outcome could be to move the outcome to the right rather than to the left, even though you've got more black faces. Now, what was in the interest of those rank and file black people? A legislature with a few black faces, 
or a legislature with a, a more moderate general temper. Uh, the latter, it would appear to be the case. You know, when you mention her, it brings me to mind of something somebody asked me last week, and I found myself floundering, as always. And this is a question you probably have an answer to. Why is it that Carol Swain is not better known, given her dossier, and given that she is perfectly capable of, of expressing her views, and that, you know, she knows how to use the media. Somebody was asking me, somebody emailed me and said, you know, do, are there any women? You know, I've been reading Coleman Hughes and Glenn Lowry and you, et cetera, this new, I guess we're the heterodox black guys. And she was saying, is there a female voice? And I said, well, there's Chloe Valdery. And I said, you know, to tell you the truth, though, beyond her, the only person I can think of with a, I hate to put it this way, but with a certain footprint, I said is Carol Swain, who you've probably never heard of. And I said that this black heterodoxy tilts male. Is it that it's black heterodoxy males tend to get more attention? Why is it that I had to work to think of Carol and that I really couldn't think of anybody else of her footprint? And I know we've talked about this before, but Carol in particular really makes me think, why is it that she isn't at those events? Why haven't you interviewed her, if I may, unless you have? Well, well, I have actually. Okay, you I have. have. Where is she? Yeah. You know, and where are the other Carol Swings? That's a that's a good uh, point. Who is this woman in uh, Virginia who just got elected lieutenant governor? Winsome, uh, with, uh, the Caribbean name. Um, yeah, Winsome Sears, something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's her. Winsome Sears. That is yeah. her. She's African American. She's outspoken. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I agree with you that there. It's it's going to be hard for me to name somebody else, and I See? I expect in Carol Swain's case, it's it's pretty idiosyncratic. I mean, she is a very outspoken and committed Christian woman who is who who wears it on her sleeve. Is the and, religious part problematic in some way? Do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, the Christian, you know, she's very she's pro life. She's sympathetic to the Christian right and their political aspirations and so forth. Uh, as I say, she's a Trump supporter, and you know so she's not so heterodox in a way. You know, well, people are gonna call her crazy. Uh, right? Uh, she's not crazy. No, the woman is not crazy. Uh, she got into trouble at Vanderbilt when she said something about Islam that offended some people. I don't know what it was, so I don't mm-hmm. want to try to repeat it. But she mm-hmm. made a critical set of comments about terrorism or something mm-hmm. that was taken to be anti-Islamic. I vaguely remember this. Yeah. And there was a big brouhaha about it, and there were calls for her resignation. She weathered that storm, mm-hmm. but uh, I think she may have had to procure legal counsel in order to negotiate with the university. And she eventually stepped away from her position. I mean, she's younger than me. I mean, she's maybe not yet 70. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's probably in her mid-60s or so. She's 66 or uh, 7, yeah. So she's, but she's taken emeritus status and is, you know, building a career for herself uh, independent of the, of the academy. Uh, so uh, she may be in bed. She may be considered to be a quirk. Marjorie Taylor Greene? No, not quite. But I'll bet you that many who think about her put her in a, in a similar kind of category. Uh, well, they think of her as a, person. a right-wing shill slash nutcase, which she's Correct. not, but. That but she's not. I think that's unfair to her. Might be part she of it. She is who she is. Okay. But yeah, there should be, there's something wrong. It's, it's not right that we're all men. And I don't completely understand why 
why that is. I, I, I want to think about it more. It, it, it's, it's, it's not a good look. Does it concern you at all that it's just a bunch of guys? Yeah, as you mentioned, it, it, it probably should concern me more than it did before you mentioned it. But yeah, it, <laughs> it, it does. <laughs> First, we have to identify the cause. And this is not to downplay Chloe, but there's only one Chloe. And so, yeah, now, if you were to go around naming the black mayors of major cities like Lori Lightfoot in uh, Chicago, London Reed or, in uh, San Francisco. Uh, yeah. OK, so he's a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, is he? Is no, London Reed a, a man? It's a, it's a woman. I beg your pardon. Excuse Unless me. I, and, and I know coffee. these gender issues are very complicated, uh, but but I don't vote in San Francisco. I didn't know. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure well, it's a woman. Uh, who's the mayor of uh, of Atlanta? Who's the mayor of What's her name? Uh, that that woman whose Washington, name I forget. DC. Who's right. the mayor of St. Louis? Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all black women. I mean, if you look at the ranks of the Progressive uh, Caucus or the or the Squad or you know Ayanna Presley or whatnot, or if you look at uh, uh, you know Congressional Black Caucus, I mean, you're going to see a lot of black women. So there are many, many, you know who contenders for Joe Biden's vice presidency before he named Kamala Harris. Uh, they were going to be women of color. There were, there's a long list of such women. Uh, they're all black. They're all uh, liberal Democrats. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's no shortage of black women in uh, politics. There's no shortage of black women in the academy who are outspoken advocates of a left of center uh, point of view. Uh, but we don't seem to have many uh, prominent black women who are right of center. And that's, that's actually an interesting puzzle. It's interesting because some of these black women mayors have views that are not at all incompatible with yours and mine, but they're in public office. Maybe there's some reason that a person like that goes out into the world and does real stuff as opposed to sitting around talking and writing the way, the way we do. I'm just trying to think that maybe that's, that's part of it. Um, You know, Black women supposedly elected Joe Biden. Isn't that an argument that you hear some places? Black women are less susceptible to the temptations of uh, of the right uh, in terms of uh, a Trump like than are black men who have peeled off a little bit instead of ninety five percent black men are down to eighty five percent or eighty percent. Hold on, I have to break the fourth wall for a second. Sorry. No, it's all good. It's it's a part of the thing, man. It's right. But let's talk about January 6th. That was also last Oh, God. Week. All right. Yeah. The anniversary of the so-called insurrection. Do you think it was an insurrection, John? Do you think it was a coup attempt? No, I, and I guess I'm wrong about this. It was a hideous thing that happened. It was a bunch of hideous people. They ended up getting some people killed. And this thing happened. And because it happened, and it was so horrific, that particular thing is highly unlikely to happen again. But I know that the way I'm supposed to take it, and I'm really trying to read all these stories and think, is that that was an indication of a roiling discontent, which is going to make it all but impossible to have a sensible election next time. And that no matter what happens, people like that are going to refuse to believe the, the 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 results and are going to rise up in greater numbers in spots all around the country and spark what could be called a civil war and that that's something that we're supposed to really be afraid might happen. Glenn, there's a part of me that lacks imagination 
I am definitely one of those people who would be caught unawares when something drastic happened. My sense is that change happens slowly and that we tend to be bound by what happened before and that if something horrible happens, then we're on guard. Kind of like 9-11 didn't happen again. And um, I'm aware that it's more than what would happen on the steps of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. But this idea that we can never again have a sensible election, I see it as a kind of alarmism. Um, that, but then again, a lot of people smarter than me clearly think that we need to be really afraid that the country has fallen apart and that we saw the first indications of it a year ago. Are, are you afraid the way so many sensible people are that we cannot have a decent election three years from now? I, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned Tell about Tell me why. Well, this didn't start with Trump, or in a way, maybe it did start with Trump in 2016. This didn't start with Trump in 2020. This issue of our uh, electoral outcomes ex post facto uh, being severely criticized in a sustained manner as having been illegitimate. That was the case after the 2016 election. Uh, and the uh, uh, narrative that Trump was in league with Vladimir Putin to undermine America's democratic institutions and hence was an illegitimate president was sustained, sustained by news organizations, uh, members of Congress, uh, elaborate investigative uh, undertakings and whatnot, and continues to echo even to this day. Uh, so, I mean, who started it, you, you could ask. Uh, Trump's behavior in 2020 was absolutely atrocious and I do think undermines the foundation. I mean, he was asked repeatedly before the election, would you accept the outcome? And he wouldn't answer the question. He wouldn't simply say, yes, I would. He could have added a codicil, uh, unless there are circumstances that whatever, but in the main, yes, I'd be inclined to accept. And then when the thing went down and uh, he had the right to go to court and raise questions that he raised and the courts decided those or decided not to hear those cases, but he didn't get any traction. He persisted in saying that the election was stolen and incited in some way or called to arms in such a manner that things uh, got out of hand and January 6th happened. And January 6th was a terrifying event, even if it wasn't a coup. I don't think it was a coup. I, I mean, I, I think that's wild hyperbole. A coup is a coup. That's where you mobilize the military, you seize the television stations, you arrest the opponents, and you, and you declare martial law. That's a coup. A coup is taking over the government. There wasn't anything close to that that happened. An insurrection? No, I think that also is hyperbole, not quite as wildly hyperbolic as a coup, but that seems to have been the way that we have now decided to refer to it. And I'm not going to argue with people about words, although I don't think it was an insurrection either. Uh, but it was a mob attacking the Capitol uh, in the way that we have all now come to be familiar with, uh, energized by the outrage they felt that the election was unfair, which was stoked by the rhetoric of the guy who had lost the election. That is very, very bad. And by the way, that guy's still out there. He's still having rallies. And just because CNN won't tell you that they're happening doesn't mean that people in Talladega, Alabama, don't know that they're happening and don't attend those rallies and don't, you know, I mean, read some of the uh, stuff that's at these right wing websites and whatnot. Those people have not have not gone away. Um, so, yeah, I worry about it. I worry about 
the uh, politicization now that has the Democrats saying uh, Republicans uh, legislatures because we have a federal system. The Democrats are barely in control of the legislature at the federal level right now. That may not survive the next election, but they are definitely not in control of a lot of state houses around the country where laws are made at the state level. And so they're trying to federalize the election process to override the uh, decisions that state legislatures duly elected and constitutionally empowered uh, have made about the details of administering elections. They say this under the cover of they're trying to take the votes from minorities away from them, meaning, of course, that these are illegitimate. I remind you, Stacey Abrams, the poster uh, child of this movement for uh, uh, minority uh, voting rights not being infringed by state legislatures, never conceded her own defeat in the gubernatorial election in Georgia, which she lost, et cetera. So you, you can look right and find people who don't want to accept the outcomes of elections. You can look left and find people who don't want to accept the outcome of elections. Everybody is trying to jigger the details. Should election day be a holiday? I mean, I don't know. Is it, is it uh, an apodictic certainty that democracy is advanced by declaring a national holiday for election day? Should people be able to submit mail ballots on, that are postmarked on the day of the election, even if they're not received and counted until after? I don't know. Uh, how, how many weeks of early voting should it be? Should it be a month? Should it be two months? Should people be able to cast the ballot for an election two months before it's actually or, or a month or a week? I mean, it seems to me that legitimate people could differ about these things. The answers to these questions are not etched in stone. They, they do not. The more liberal the rules about voting, the more democratic the process, that is a, that is a, a, a falsehood in, in my view. There are prudent reasons for asking for integrity of the ballot. They're not all efforts to disenfranchise minority populations. It's gotten to the point now where even to mention the issue of the integrity of the ballot, even to mention the possibility that there could be some shenanigans with the harvesting of ballots from nursing homes by political operatives, et cetera, et cetera, is to define oneself as being against the minority voting rights. The Supreme Court has decided some cases like that Shelby County versus uh, Holder case or that Citizens United case about campaign finance, which legislation the Democrats want to pass in the House now in the name of voting integrity and democracy would override. The Supreme Court is against democracy now because it has a liberal interpretation of who should be able to finance uh, political action committees or because it thinks that a state like Mississippi shouldn't have a federal court uh, deciding whether or not they can move the location of a polling place uh, or uh, whatever. That, that's the definition of democracy. So I, it seems to me there's enough blame to go around left and right. But the bottom line is uh, it has been relativized. What used to be, when I was coming along, taken for granted, you had an election that counted the ballots, you woke up the next morning and you know who won, has now become a political football. And that is not good. I think David Brooks really hit one out of the park this week when he um I didn't see it. It's it's one of his better ones where he makes the point that the idea that attempts at voter suppression as repulsive as they are actually have a significant effect has been pretty much disproven. It's clear that as nefarious as those attempts are on the ground, they really don't make that much difference. They don't suppress the vote. And I can tell that for a lot of people who call themselves speaking for black people, that news is disappointing. 
it is, it's the typical, it's the woke racism in, in a way, that people don't want to hear that what the Republicans are trying to do actually doesn't work that well, because what they want to do is crusade against an injustice. When it turns out that the injustice actually is not happening to the, nearly the extent that we're being told, these people view it as an inconvenience because it means they, they don't have something to have their fist up in the air about. When really David Brooks was making the point that we need to really concentrate on the people who are responsible for registering these votes and counting these votes and, you know, giving us what we're supposed to accept or not accept. That end of election, it, that end of the voting process is what's really in trouble. And we need to focus on that. Everything should be about spending these three years making sure that there's more clarity about that and that a certain kind of person cannot shut it all down. But I don't know if that can be because people are, and I'm not trying to knock Stacey Abrams. And it's not that none of these things happen at all, but the idea that our main concern must be that we're back to pre-Voting Rights Act 1965 and the poll tax. Great drama, great theater. It has nothing to do with actually what's going on on the ground, which I am relieved by. But I guess we're not supposed to feel that way. We're not good black people to be relieved by what many studies have now shown. But you're making me think what we're supposed to really be afraid of, that it's at the point where what happened a year ago has to happen again. There's no reason why it wouldn't happen again. There are people who are sitting, stewing, and insisting that how they viewed it then is the way it was. And there would be nothing anyone could say to convince them otherwise. Nothing anyone could say to convince them that Democrats had won the election next time. Um, which which is very good. What would they do? What, what are they going to do? So every capital is going to be under major guard. That mobbing of state capital buildings is not going to work again. So what else are they going to do? And I, I guess we're supposed to be afraid that they're going to start blowing up bridges or what, what is it? What, what, what is, I mean, people are coming up with these interesting apocalyptic scenarios, all of which strike me as very creative and very intelligent, but somewhat unlikely. If you can't mob a building, what else are you going to do? And if they do it, how is it a civil war? So let's say that a bunch of you know, Republican partisans and skinheads are very, very upset for a month. What are they going to do to shut the country down? And that's a genuine question. I'm not sure what we're imagining at this point. They'll say some terrible things. Are they going to get out guns and start killing people? Is that what people are afraid of? Because that would be something quite unprecedented in terms of how people adjudicate their feelings about the vote at this point. Like what what I, I just I lack the imagination. I guess I don't read enough. Well, let, let me let me just invite you to reflect on the summer of 2020 after the killing of George Floyd mm -hmm. and the question of police brutality mm -hmm. uh, arose and spontaneously in dozens of cities across the country, mm -hmm. large numbers of people did, in fact, take to the street, mm -hmm. uh, mostly peaceful protests. OK. I mean, we could do the counting exercise. Well, they're going to break the, some uh, windows, policies. right? Yeah. Well, they're going to set some cars on fire. They're going to they're going to mob around certain government uh, centers, and they're going to and they're going to uh, remonstrate. Uh, but I mean, who's in control of events? What about a political assassination? Suppose somebody were to shoot. God help me. God help us. One of these candidates, Donald J. Trump, for example. What do you think actually would happen? I, I, I could imagine spontaneous, violent demonstrations breaking out in which 
opposing camps met each other in the street with clubs and knives and, uh, you know, uh, picks and axes and uh, whatnot and, uh, and, and, and uh, battled it out. I mean, I, you know, chaos, anarchy. Uh, because Donald Trump was assassinated. He was, he was our tribune and he was, you know, whatever. They didn't want him to have another chance to run in 2024, whatever. I mean, I, I, you know. Heaven forbid, God help us. This, I'm I, so, I certainly I'm, am not. You know. I'm so unsuitable on this because my feeling is if something like that were going to happen, it would have happened already. And I know that's full of holes, but somebody yeah, would have shot him already. Right. What, what, what would, what's different now? And if people were going to take to the streets for reasons like these, there would have been more Charlottevilles already. And if it happens next time, okay, some. Some right-wing people are going to take to the streets. They're going to break some windows. Frankly, some people would die, which would be a horrible thing. And then they're going to go home, and they're going to feed their kids, and they're going to go back about their business, and we'll have had a really nasty week. I can't. We should say here that, that neither one of us are experts about the voting process, and I'm sure that there's a criticism out there that runs along the lines of, do you know what Donald Trump actually did to try to subvert the outcome of 2020? He tried to get the secretary of state or somebody in Georgia to not certify the ballots that that he tried to do something in Pennsylvania and in Arizona, which would have, uh, in effect, nullified the uh, if the courts had ruled favorably on some of the bullshit uh, protest uh, complaints that he brought in there. Uh, we would still be in a state of flux about knowing what the outcome of the he tried to get of the 2020 election. He tried to get Michael Pence to not do what he was supposed to do. And the whole January 6th thing was about obstructing the Congress from certifying the results of the election. He had other cards that he and Steve Bannon might've played, but they never got to play because they got preempted by the events of January 6th. What do you mean uh, that nothing can happen? A lot can happen. Uh, and apparently military, former military officers, you've heard about this piece uh, in the Washington Post by a, a former military a uh, high-ranking military officer concerned about the possibilities of civil unrest and where would the military stand and what plans, contingency plans do we have to deal? So I don't know as much about this as I should know to talk about it. It's a, it's a serious matter. I expect we don't fully, you and I, fully understand the intricacies of the mechanism well enough to identify where the critical choke points are that where, where things could go wrong. Um, but I expect David Brooks is on to something. I'm going to go and find his piece in pointing out the importance of securing the process at the state and local level where ballots are counted and voting outcomes are certified, uh, because uh, that might be the critical space, uh, place of intervening in order to change, change electoral uh, results. Nobody ever knows a civil war is coming, is the thing. They're always, you know, sweater vested people like me saying, oh, calm down. And so, yeah, I'm fully aware of that, you know, to anticipate what some of the comments are going to be. You, we, no one knows. Life happens day to day. And then all of a sudden, oh, my God, what happened? I'm open to the idea that that's how we should be thinking now. But boy, it's a hard way for me to think somehow. I've got a brother-in-law. Um, he's, he's not really a right winger. I think that would be wrong, but he is a gun enthusiast and he does uh, hang out with right wingers sometimes in the pursuit of his enthusiasm. And he tells me <clears throat> that uh, the, the uh, white nationalist, conservative, uh, pro-gun, uh, hate government, uh, love Trump contingency is locked and loaded and looking for trouble. 
he tells me that uh, the when you uh, go and visit some of these places, all you got to do, he lives in um, Riverside, California. All you got to do is drive 10 miles from where he lives in the right direction and you'll find these people and talk to them about what happened in the summer of 2020 in terms of the riots and the billions of dollars of property destroyed and the uh, uh, protests, the racial riots by black people burning police cars, taking over and uh, looting businesses, et cetera, et cetera. He says that just hardens these people. They think a war, they think a race war is coming and they're ready. You better not come to their neighborhood. When he uh, is talking to them about uh, this guy in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, who uh, massacred Darryl some people. Walker. Darryl something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Brooks. Yeah, Brooks. Daryl yeah. Brooks. He says, uh, what they say is, I told you so. I told you these ends are, are uh, no good, et cetera, et cetera, and that the cuck Democrats, I'm sorry, this is the way they talk, um, tolerate them and placate them, and blah, but they better not come to my neighborhood. They mess with me and I'll blow their effing heads off, et cetera, et cetera, that there's a lot of that out there looking for an excuse to do something. Uh, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse is the tip of the iceberg. He says, so let's just bear that in mind. Why didn't black resistance in that era we talked about a couple times ago, say 1969, why didn't it ever go any further than breaking some windows, scaring some white people and talking about how we're going to burn this motherfucker down, carrying some guns and saying, if we don't get freedom, then we're going to take freedom for ourselves. You know those grainy newsreels you see? How come it never went further than that? There's an extent to which especially a certain kind of male, usually under 35, enjoys that kind of bragging, that kind of strutting. They do it for one another. Boy, this is going to look naive, but if it turns out that you're right and your brother-in-law is right, but that's the way a certain kind of guy talks and always has. And they get older. And the thing is, do they really ever do it? The uprising never seems to really happen. Are they really that mad? I can't help thinking that. Because based on this predicate, I know how scary those guys are, but listen to the Panthers back in 1968, what we're going to do. And no one did it. And they could have. How come, how come those guys didn't all get together and blow America up? They could have. There's still people who talk like that, certain black radicals. Never seems to happen. I feel like there might be some of that here too, but maybe I'm comparing the wrong things. You know, maybe we underestimate the effectiveness of the law enforcement who can infiltrate and you know cultivate informants and whatnot. You know, maybe there, if we knew more about this, we would be able to cite uh, the cases that were nipped in the bud that you know were potentially uh, much more dangerous than what they were. Uh, but maybe you're right. Maybe the the structural know. conditions for real insurrection simply aren't present. Maybe. Uh, and maybe the polarization, as bad as it is, isn't as bad as it gets in Sarajevo, where uh, different factions are fighting feudal, like uh, multi-generational, you know, ethnic uh, whatever, and they're blowing each other up. Suicide bombs and cafes, you know, how come there are no suicide bombers going into upscale restaurants and blowing themselves up and killing 30 people, this kind of thing? Yeah, uh, and we shouldn't talk about it because we don't want anybody to get any ideas, but... No, we don't. Yeah, that's the sort of thing I find myself 
wondering. And, you know, there, I hate to call it a cultural difference, but maybe it wouldn't be suicide bombing, but something equally horrible. The kind of bomb, shrapnel bombs or something like that. Doesn't seem to happen here, just like there's never a socialist revolution here. Maybe, but maybe we lack imagination. Maybe I lack imagination. It's just, I can't imagine it somehow. No, that, that's our politics, even our radical politics, whether underground from the 60s and early 70s, it notwithstanding, yeah. looks very different than European politics. Mm-hmm. You know, when when, the, when those fringes get mobilized, they actually do some shit. You know, the German yeah. uh, Meinhof, Bader Meinhof or the French uh, radicals, even the is- Islamic radicals in Europe who are radical are at uh, some, uh, uh, in some sense, are more dangerous and systematic a threat to and the, the weather underground. Than- yeah, and the weather underground scares some people and they do some things here and there and then they accidentally blow up a building in Greenwich Village, and that's kind of it. <laughs> it wasn't the beginning <laughs> of a new America, and it's just you get you get complacent here, and maybe maybe we need to think more catastrophically. But yeah, it's it's hard. John, I simply don't want our conversation to end without calling attention to your prolific contributions to American journalism that are being published in the New York Times newsletter. <laughs> Before we signed on today, I had I have not paid attention to you for the last few weeks. I went and looked, and I said, "Man, this guy's got one blockbuster piece after another after another." I don't know how you do it. Thank I you. don't know how you do it. I mean, I got a list here: banning Negro. You're against the idea that people should not be able to utter the word Negro, and you got a very good the great books. You got a defense of reading, uh, you know, Augustine and 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 uh, Aristotle and Kant. You got this, you know, whatever and. Uh, sociological newspeak, uh, whatever. I mean, it's just a, a great tribute to Stephen Sondheim. who wrote the songbook oh, yeah. of your life, you say. Uh, he did. You're a great lover of musical theater. It's sort of hats off to you, John. You're killing it over at the New York Times. Glenn, thank you for that, because it's, um, it's a, it's a full-time job, and I it's been an so. adventure. <laughs> you know what? Actually, folks, I want to do a, real, a shameless plug here, because I've, I've learned that it's necessary. And that is this. I did, for many years, a language and linguistics podcast at Slate. It's called Lexicon Valley. And about six months ago, my producer and I moved it to booksmartstudios.org. And so it's the same podcast. It's just under a different aegis. I think a lot of people think that I just stopped doing it because Slate, as they should have, replaced my podcast with one by some other people. And when you go online now and you look for Lexicon Valley... What you get automatically is the new show as opposed to my old episodes. So I think some people think Lexicon Valley is gone. No, Lexicon Valley, which I do every two weeks in addition to this Times business, is now at booksmartstudios.org. It's still me. It's still the show tunes. It's still the irrelevant stories. It's still the linguistic geekery. It's still there. And I want you to listen to it along with two other podcasts that booksmartstudios.org does. Glenn, this will be over in, in 15 seconds. It's all good, John. One it's of them good. is by Amna Khalid, who is a brilliant historian, and it's called Banished, and it's about cancel culture. And the other one is by NPR's Bob Garfield, and it's called Bully Pulpit, and he goes all over the place. Those three podcasts, they are at booksmartstudios.org. We are at Substack, too, and we want you to listen. So, folks, if you think Lexicon Valley is gone, and if you think that I'm crazy for keeping on doing it while also writing for the Times, I'm crazy. 
please listen to Lexicon Valley, which still goes on and is still the same show, except a little more topical. And I wanted to announce that here, just for people who are watching this or listening to this, who also maybe think that I'm not still doing the language podcast. I'm going to keep doing it. So, Glenn, I'm done with the self-promotion, but I just wanted to. That is booksmartstudios.org. Booksmartstudios.org. Listen in or I'm happy to, happy to hear you endorse your uh, endeavors, John. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll catch, catch up with you guys in two weeks. Thanks for listening. That's right. Thanks, folks. Bye, John. See you later, Glenn.